We come this morning to the preaching of the Word of God. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want to invite you this morning to turn to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. And just as we do each week, we're going to pause now before the preaching of the Word, and we're going to ask God for help, the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's do that now. Let's pray together. Lord, you are the king with all authority in heaven and on earth. And Lord, we come to you now, God, and we ask in the name of Jesus, on grounds of your gospel, Lord, we ask you to draw near. Lord, give us help this morning from heaven and father we ask for light from your word today cause it to shine into our hearts lord we ask for help and strength from the holy spirit to comprehend the love of christ that surpasses knowledge help us this morning feed our souls with the things of eternity, the things of heaven. And be exalted, O Lord, this morning from Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, church, we continue our study of Matthew's Gospel. And more specifically, in recent weeks, the final night of Jesus' life. And what I want to prepare you for this morning is that final night of his life was a night of intense contrast. We are now in transition from the celebration of the Passover with Jesus and his disciples. And this morning we're going to make this transition, this intense contrast to the soul-anguishing trauma of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as we begin this morning, I want you to contemplate this question for yourselves. What does Gethsemane mean to me? What does Gethsemane mean to me? And by that question, I don't mean what does it mean to you? How do you interpret it? Though that's part of it. I mean, what does it mean to you in the sense of how much value or preciousness do you place upon what transpired in that garden? What does it mean to you? Friends, what I hope you see this morning is that something happened in this garden outside of Jerusalem that changed eternity And I want us to marvel this morning at Jesus Christ. I want us to be astounded this morning at the love of Christ. And I want to say this before we go any further. Is I feel so insufficient this morning for this task. Extraordinarily insufficient for this task. Is I want you to see that as my brothers and sisters in Christ all across the room. I want you to see the glory of Jesus. 
But I cannot say all that can be said about this moment. And I feel it. But I felt better this week after reading a quote from Charles Spurgeon. And I want to share it with you before we read this passage. Spurgeon says this about Gethsemane. He says, here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. And no man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It is the subject of prayerful, heartbroken meditation more than for human language. May the Holy Spirit graciously reveal to us all that we can be permitted to see of the King beneath the olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I say amen to that. And I want to encourage you to find a place, maybe even this afternoon, to weep and to marvel over the glory of Jesus Christ that is revealed to us in His Word. Let's read our passage together. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. This is the Word of God to Grace Community Church this morning. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and he prayed, My father... If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and he found them sleeping. For their eyes were heavy. And so leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's word to Grace Community Church. 
this morning. First, let's start with the setting of the story. It's a place called Gethsemane. Right outside the holy city, that last night of Jesus' life, Jesus leads his disciples outside the walled city of Jerusalem. And they go down into the valley and they cross the Kidron Valley and they ascend up the Mount of Olives and they find this garden called Gethsemane. This was a familiar place to Jesus. He used it as a place of prayer during the final week of his life, Passion Week, in the holy city. In fact, it's so familiar to Jesus that Judas knew this was the place to find him. This was the place that Judas would lead the guards out to find Jesus Christ, Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means olive press. This was an olive garden with a press in the midst in the midst of it, a place for pressing out olives into olive oil. And what a fitting title that is for this story, because that is exactly what happens to Jesus Christ in Gethsemane. He is pressed out and crushed. What is happening in this garden is that Jesus is in agony. And it's impossible to overstate his emotional, psychological state in this moment. He's in agony. His whole life, he had lived out Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah said he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But here the sorrow comes in such an intense wave that it swallows up everything that he's experienced up to this point. Up to this point, this is the biggest crisis that Jesus has faced. The conflict had not been this intense for Jesus for several years since Jesus left the wilderness when he was assaulted by all the darts and the temptations of Satan himself. Satan left him in that moment and waited for a more opportune time. Well, this is that opportune time where all the power of darkness is unleashed against the Son of God in Gethsemane. Here Jesus is tested again to the absolute limits of his human nature. Look at how Matthew describes his state in verse 37. We are told that Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. I want us to see him there this morning. And something comes upon him. Something overwhelms Jesus. Sorrow and grief begin to grip the soul of the Son of God and press Him and squeeze Him and begin to crush Him. I want you to think of how shocking this would have been for the three disciples that Jesus brings into the garden to pray with Him. Peter, James, and John. Shocking for this reason, that for three years they had spent daily life with a sinless man. 
And what I mean by that is there was never a man more full of joy than Jesus Christ. He had the joy of the Holy Spirit. Every day of his life, he walked in the fullness of joy. They never saw a man that believed God and trusted God and rested in the promises of God as much as Jesus. And they saw it over and over and over again. I mean, when the megastorm was kicked up on the Sea of Galilee, they saw the, the, the man of perfect faith asleep in the boat while they feared for their life. And yet all of a sudden they saw a sight that they'd never seen before. They saw the sinless Son of Man overwhelmed with sorrow and grief. They saw Him being crushed. And I don't want us to lightly pass over this soul anguish of Jesus in Gethsemane. And one of the things that I want to warn us about is making inappropriate connections to our hardship and suffering, to what Jesus is enduring in this moment. There's a uniqueness here that cannot ever be repeated because of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. His experience is a unique anguish. Just like Jesus is about to die a unique death that no one else could ever die, a substitutionary death, a wrath-bearing death, a saving death, he's experiencing an anguish that no one else can ever experience. It's unique. I don't intend to downplay our trials. They are many, and at some, some points they are very heavy. But I say this with all respect that you didn't go through your Gethsemane moment. This is unique to Jesus. This is unique to Jesus Christ. Jesus describes his state again in verse 38 with these words, My soul is very sorrowful. And then he says this, Even unto death. Even unto death. And the more I studied this passage this week, the more I'm convinced that Jesus almost died in this garden. He was stretched to the very limits of his human nature. This is a description of unimaginable distress even unto death. Death is drawing near to Jesus in this moment. Understand What's being described here is a soul-crushing weight that is threatening the physical life of Jesus Christ. How precious is this to you? How precious is this to you? That the King of Heaven is tasting the very limits of human suffering. What does Gethsemane mean to you? Luke's gospel gives us an additional detail into this moment. And it tells us that Jesus was in agony. He was in agony. We're told two things about his physical state. We're told that Jesus falls to the ground. And Luke tells us that he begins to sweat great drops of blood. You see how unique this is. Pressed to the very limits of his human nature. The weight that he is experiencing. 
is about to kill him. And the most important thing to get right in this passage is why. Why? Why is Jesus in agony? Why is he overwhelmed with sorrow and trouble and grief? Why? In order to properly answer this question, we need to eliminate three options of what Jesus is not troubled about. Number one is this. Jesus is not in agony in Gethsemane because he just found out his fate. He's not in agony because he just realized that he is to die the death of the cross. And we can say this for several reasons. Number one, Jesus knew his Old Testament. He knew his Old Testament. Jesus knew he was, for example, the Isaiah 53 suffering servant of Yahweh. He knew that was him. He knew that he would be pierced for the transgression of his people. He knew that his soul would make an offering for guilt. He already knew that. In fact, the previous paragraph in Matthew 26, Jesus quoted Zechariah's prophecy where he said that God himself would strike the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus knew he was the shepherd and he knew that God was the one who was going to strike him. And not only that, he directly prophesies his own death several times in the Gospels. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, he told his disciples that he was the bridegroom that would suddenly be taken away from them at the wedding feast. And then they will mourn on that day, Jesus said. He pointed back to Jonah the prophet and he said, A greater than Jonah is here. He said he came to give the sign of Jonah. Jonah was in the fish for three days and he said, But the Son of Man will be three nights in the earth. He knew he was to die. He says this explicitly in Matthew 17. He's, Matthew 17, 22, Jesus said, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And not only that, just prior to Gethsemane, a couple of weeks ago, Greg taught us this. Jesus commemorated his death with the Lord's Supper. He gives his disciples the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is not new information for Jesus. So the agony is not because of new information. That's number one. Number two, neither is the agony due to any unwillingness in Jesus. So it would be wrong for us to understand this in this way, that Jesus knew what awaited him, but it, but it was in this moment that he became willing to accept what the Father had given him. Jesus' whole life was a life of perfect submission to the will of God. Matt, uh, John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says this, I have come down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but the will of him 
who sent me. John's gospel actually tells us that it is Jesus' meat and drink. It's his food to do the will of the Father and to finish his work. There's never been a moment where Jesus' will was in contradiction to the will of his Father. Number three, neither was the agony due to a fear of physical death. So important that we understand this. As gruesome as Roman crucifixion was, and it was a gruesome, torturous, dreadful way to die. As gruesome as it was, there were Christian martyrs who followed Jesus who sang their way to the cross. They showed tremendous boldness, tremendous courage, as they praised God in the moments that they gave up their life. And we're left with this question, are those martyrs stronger than their Lord? God forbid. God forbid that the martyrs would be stronger than Jesus. This clues us in that Jesus is experiencing something different than the death of a martyr. He is enduring something that they're not enduring in their final moments. The key to his anguish is the mention of the cup in this passage. His prayer it's revolving around the removal of the cup. If, if, if it were possible that the cup would be removed. So whatever is in that cup is causing sorrow even unto death in the soul of Jesus Christ. And again, the most important thing in this passage to get right is what is in that cup. What is in that cup? What most distressed Jesus was not his coming physical death by means of the cross, but the drinking of the cup that his father was about to give him. In scripture, the drinking of the cup is a symbol for experiencing the wrath of God. Listen to Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. And he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And so understand, the cup is a judgment metaphor. It's a metaphor for God's judgment. It's a metaphor for God's wrath. And so the anguish and the turmoil was the response of Jesus' flesh as Jesus anticipated taking on all the guilt of the world and all the punishment that is due for our sin. The agony reminds us that what Jesus did for us, he did as a real man. He did as a real man. Not a superman who's not subject to all of our weaknesses. Not a demigod. 
but a real man, true man, the God man, fully God, fully man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pressed to the limits for us and for our salvation. In this moment in Gethsemane, think of all the ways that God's word describes the judgment to come. He saw, friends, the outer darkness. He saw it. He saw the wages of sin. He saw death and hell. He saw the curse of the law and the wrath of God. The shadow of death. He saw unutterable woe in that cup. And he saw that he would be the one to drink it. Down to the dregs. He saw himself as the damned scapegoat in the Old Testament. The slaughtered lamb. The whole burnt offering that was about to be completely consumed by the wrath of God. He saw the cup of judgment. And I believe his response in this passage to the sleeping disciples actually gives us a framework to understand what is happening to Jesus in this moment. He tells his disciples, who have the temptation of their own, and we'll come back to that, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I believe that's exactly what is happening to Jesus as he looks into that cup. His spirit is willing to drink it, but his flesh is weak. His flesh is weak. His flesh was weak even though he was the strongest man that ever lived. His flesh was weak because flesh is weak. Human nature is subject to weaknesses that divine nature is never subject to. The Bible teaches us that when Jesus came into the world, at His incarnation, the Word became flesh. The eternal Son of God became the incarnate Son of God. And when that happened... The Son became subject to all the weaknesses of the flesh. Hunger and thirst. Grief and sorrow. And even weakness unto pain and death. When Jesus saw that cup, He saw in that cup what was humanly unbearable to see and his flesh in that moment was overwhelmed to use the language of Zechariah's prophecy in that previous paragraph what did Jesus see well he saw the father with a sword in his hand God said I will strike the shepherd and Jesus saw him with a sword in his hand ready to strike the shepherd of the sheep he saw the most terrifying thing you could ever imagine seeing The wrath of God mixed full strength without any mercy. Just the contemplation of drinking that cup almost killed him. 
Just the contemplation of what lay before him stretched the creaturely capacities of the God-man to the absolute limit. Sorrow unto death. What does Gethsemane mean to you? See how holy this moment is. It's overwhelming when we remember that He's there for us. He's not trembling because He's going to drink the cup for His own sins. He's there for us. What does it mean to you? Here we see the Savior pressed to the very limits of His humanity. Jesus was preparing to do the hardest thing He would ever do. He would face the sword of God's wrath and he would face it as a man. He would drink that cup in the weakness of his human nature. This is why Gethsemane cannot be illustrated by our difficult experiences. Our troubles are real and many, but this is altogether unique what is happening in this moment. In that moment, Jesus was being tempted. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus is being tempted in this moment. In the same way that he was tempted in chapter 4 in the wilderness when he was assaulted by the lies of the devil. Jesus is being tempted to avoid the sin-bearing death of the cross. And all the powers of hell are coming down upon him in this moment. The realization of what it's about to cost him causes him to ask the Father for another way, if possible. He's being tempted, so what does he do? He prays so that he may not yield to that temptation. He's wrestling in prayer. Luke tells us that our Savior is praying so hard in this moment that he's sweating blood. He's resisting sin to bloodshed in this moment. Hebrews 5 comments back on the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it tells us that Jesus was praying, listen, with loud cries and tears. He's lifting up his soul to his Father. My Father! And there's tears streaming down his cheeks. He's crying out to God. The desire of Jesus' flesh is to be spared of the cup. But we see in the way that he frames his prayer that his deeper desire is to submit to his Father. To submit to his Father. His spirit is willing, but his flesh is weak. His will ultimately is to to submit to his Father's will. Notice that when Jesus prays, he looks only for what is permissible within the Father's will. And that's exactly how you should pray. This is perfect submission to his Father who's in heaven. 
Notice that every time Jesus prays, he he prays three times, Matthew tells us. The same words, the same request. Every time he makes that request, he finishes it with submission. But your will be done. Your will be done. Verse 42. If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done done. Sometimes you hear people say that Jesus' prayer here was not answered, and I think that's an error. Notice that his prayer is ultimately answered. What did Jesus ask? Well, he asked most deeply, your will be done. Your will be done. And guess what? God answered that prayer. The will of God was done. He submitted all of his requests to the will of his Father, and the will of his Father is exactly what happened. Jesus never prayed a prayer that wasn't answered by his Father because his will was in perfect submission to his Father. Luke tells us that Jesus is so physically weak that an angel is sent to strengthen him in prayer. Now I want you to imagine that moment. Imagine the perspective of that angel. Imagine that. The father summons this angel and here's the task. You think our task is weighty? Here's the task. Go strengthen my son. Go strengthen my son. The maker of angels is strengthened by an angel in the garden. This is how weak Jesus was. That he was upheld by the ministers of God in his weakest moments. This is the same thing that happens in Matthew chapter 4. Where Jesus is fasting and he's so weak that an angel ministers to him in that moment. Stretched to the limits. He's strengthened by angels. And, and, And Luke says, so he prays more earnestly. He gets that strength and he just pours out his soul to his father. He wrestles in prayer. He submits to his father. And he stands up from prayer in the garden and he resolves to finish his course. To do what he came to do. To do the will of his father. You'll notice that in the Gospels, Jesus leaves Gethsemane with a different demeanor than we see Jesus have inside of Gethsemane. There's a pivot that happens in the Son of God. He wrestles in prayer. He gets the victory. He lands on a place of assurance and boldness and steadfastness and determination to do the will of His Father. And so just a few minutes later, when the guards come... To arrest him, his disciples try to defend him. And he says this to Peter in John 18, verse 11. Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He got his answer. He knew his mission. He submitted to his charge. And he left that garden with resolve to drink that cup from the Father. 
When he leaves Gethsemane, the die is cast. This is uh, the event that sets in motion the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The cup is the prelude to the cross. It triggers the series of events throughout this night that leads to Jesus' death. Which is why he says this in verse 45. The hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. The hour is at hand. The hour for which Jesus came into the world has now arrived. I want us to reflect on several different levels of what we can learn about this Gethsemane scene. And so we'll start here. What can we learn about ourselves from Gethsemane? And we can learn by proxy, you you could say it that way, through the three disciples who are with Jesus at Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John. Jesus predicted in the, in the previous paragraph that all would fall away that night. He prophesied that. And that prediction should have been, what it should have been, was a call to prayer. And to resist that temptation. A call to prayer that they wouldn't enter into that temptation. They should have been praying that they wouldn't yield to that temptation to abandon Jesus in his hour of need. And isn't it amazing, while Jesus is is experiencing a woe that we can never understand, he's going into a territory where no one else can tread in that moment. While he's experiencing that, he's also mindful of the lesser temptations of his disciples who are sleeping in Gethsemane. While he's experiencing this overwhelming, crushing sorrow, he exhorts them to pray that they may not enter into temptation. He is mindful of their temptations even while he's bearing his own. Now remember, three disciples are there, Peter, James, and John. And Matthew actually tells us some significant things about these disciples. Earlier in chapter 20, Jesus looked at the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he asked this question. Are you able to drink my cup? And those two brothers said these words. We are able. We can do it. In the previous paragraph... Peter, the third party in the garden, says these words to Jesus Christ. Though they all fall away, I will never fall away. And yet, all three of the ones who swear allegiance to Jesus Christ, even unto death, are asleep in his moment of need. What can we learn about ourselves. Gethsemane reminds us that Christ was relationally alone in his final hours and this was the will of God. It was the will of God for Jesus to be alone. What Jesus 
came to do, he did alone, and his disciples added nothing to his work. Nothing. They slept while he prayed. Those who pledge allegiance to him, I can drink the cup. I'm willing to die. They couldn't even stay awake to pray in Gethsemane. What we can learn about ourselves is, friends, I want you to behold our inabilities to play even a supportive role in the work of Christ. Can't even play a supportive role. There were those in the Old Testament who held up the arms of Moses while Moses prayed. We can't even do that to Jesus. He does it all. He does it by himself with none of our help. And I want you to know that, that that's what you need. You don't need a life coach to pat you on the bottom and, and, and tell you to get at it at different points in your life. You need a Savior who will save you from your sin, who will accomplish a work on your behalf, who will do it all. And that's exactly what Jesus did. The best we had to offer, the champions of the Christian church slept in Jesus' darkest hour. He did it completely without our help, and therefore none will share in the glory that is due His name. Second thing we can learn about ourselves from Gethsemane is the weight of our sin. I mean, it is a pandemic in our world to have little puny thoughts of sin. Sin is this little thing. Sin is, oops, I made a mistake. Versus, woe is me, I'm undone. We can learn about the weight of sin in Gethsemane. The cup that Jesus contemplated drinking was the weight of our sin. And there was nothing light about it. You want to know how bad your sin is? Look at Gethsemane. Look at Jesus in agony there. There's no oops. There's no, I made a little mistake. It cost him everything. Look at the pains he endured in that moment to bring many sons to glory, the writer of Hebrews says. It was no light thing that Jesus endured in the garden. It was soul-crushing anguish. That's the weight of our sin. Another perspective, what, what does Gethsemane teach us about Jesus, about Christ? It teaches us about ourselves. What does it teach us about Jesus? First, you could say this, is that the cup that Jesus was about to drink teaches us the kind of death that Jesus is going to die. At its core, the most central aspect of the death of Christ has been described as penal substitutionary atonement. Penal. Jesus suffered the penalty of the law. God's curse for sin. God's just punishment for sin. It was a penal death. It was a punishment. Galatians 3 says it this way. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He was about to go into the outer darkness 
for us. Substitutionary. Jesus did not die for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. He drank the cup that belonged to us. We should have drank that cup. And if there were no gospel, we would drink that cup. Every single one of us down to the dregs. That was our cup that he drank in our place. Substitutionary. Christ died for our sins. That should have been us in agony. Atonement. His death satisfies the wrath of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin. Sin was placed upon Jesus at the cross. Romans 3 verse 25 tells us that Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, sin was placed upon Him and He was made a bloody payment for our sins that canceled all the Father's anger, all the Father's wrath was completely absorbed with this holy sacrifice. Jesus died a penal death, a substitutionary death, and an atoning death. I want us to see it this morning. How closely does Jesus identify with sinners? Not only was he subject to our weaknesses like hunger and thirst and, 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 and grief and sorrow, but how, how far does he descend in his humiliation? How closely does Jesus identify with sinners? He identifies so fully that he becomes the object of God's wrath, pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Who in all the world could ever do this for you? Let's just imagine for a moment that there were a hundred people willing. Who would be qualified to do this for you? But here's the thing. No one is qualified beside him. And no one came to save you but him. No one has loved you like Jesus. No one. We learn about the kind of death that Christ is about to die. Secondly, we learn of Jesus' perfect obedience in Gethsemane. Say, so what do you mean by that? Gethsemane shows us sinless humanity on full display. Perfect submission to the Father. Perfect love for the Father. Perfect obedience to the Father on full display. And that's exactly what we needed. We needed a spotless lamb, a blameless sacrifice for our sins. We needed a savior to come and do what we failed to do ourselves. And not only did Jesus take our penalty in his death, he lived the life that we should have lived in his life. This is referred to as the active and the passive obedience of Jesus Christ. And we needed both. We're saved by his life. We're saved by his death. We also learn of Jesus' love for sinners in Gethsemane. And I hope you see that. 
It was for us that he resisted sin to the limits of his humanity. Imagine the assaults of Satan in that moment. Finding the most opportune time to unleash all the power of hell. Imagine Satan pointing to those disciples about a stone's throw away. Luke tells us, just right over there, pointing to those disciples and suggesting, you're doing this for them? That's who you're doing this for? They're sleeping. They don't even care enough to watch and pray with you. You're doing this for them. You're going to throw it all away for them? Are they worth it? Friends, this is one of many places in the Bible where we are shown that Jesus loves us because he loves us. There is nothing in us worthy of the love of Christ. And you see that on full display there. There's nothing that Peter, James, and John are bringing to the table that would provoke the Son of God to continue in agony to save them from their sins. They're asleep. They're falling away from Him. And He loves them to the end. Jesus was stretched to the limits of endurance and drew near the gates of death for the ones who slept in His darkest hour. And I hope you can see yourself there. Loved by Christ. Nothing to bring to the table. Finally, what does Gethsemane teach us about the gospel? About the Christian gospel? It shows us that Christ is the last Adam. The Bible calls Jesus the second Adam. The last Adam. He came to do what the first Adam failed to do. In the first garden, Adam took the direct opposite posture to God. And he basically said this, not your will, but my will be done. That was the first Adam in the first garden. In this garden, the garden of Gethsemane, the true Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, submits perfectly to God. Not my will, but your will be done. The first Adam sinned against God in paradise with everything going his way. In the most beautiful atmosphere that could have ever been created for him and he failed. Jesus perfectly obeys while he's being stretched to the very limits as the man Christ Jesus. Jesus drank the cup of wrath without mercy so that we may drink the cup of mercy without wrath. That's why he's there. And understand this, and and Gethsemane shows us this so clearly. Jesus did not come to drink a little bit of that cup and then hand, hand the cup to you and say, you finish the rest of it. He didn't come to do that. He came to drink it all. And Gethsemane shows us that. That Jesus came 
to drink the cup of God's wrath down to the last drop. This is why Jesus says in his final breath, it is finished. The Lord Jesus finished the work of salvation for his people. Gethsemane assures us that Jesus came to pay it all. He came to pay it all. This is what Gethsemane meant to Jesus. It meant staring into the cup and being gripped by anguish that almost killed him. It meant resisting temptation and resolving to absorb God's wrath for your sin through his human weakness. It meant knowing that in just a few hours he would die alone, slaughtered like a lamb under the curse of God. Friends, that's what Gethsemane meant for Jesus. And I leave you with this question. What does it mean to you? Let's pray. Lord, we want to honor you in this moment, and we do. God, we ask for a right response to your word. God, we pray that all the weight of the glory of Christ and the condescension of Christ would land upon us rightly. God, we ask that you would empower us and enable us to perceive your love, Lord Jesus. And we give thanks to you, Lord. You are Christ. You are the Son of God. You're the Savior of the world. And there is none like you, Lord. And we lift up our hearts this morning and bless your holy name for your salvation. Jesus, you have loved us to the very end. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together.